Good morning. You guys all decided to sleep in and come second service, I see. Some of you belong to first service and you're out of place. I'm on to you. Um, actually, I see a lot of faces that are uh, new this morning, and I want to welcome you to Bethel Church. Uh, thank you for having the courage to try out a new church. I can't imagine how difficult uh, that can be. I'm sure at times it's like trying out a new family, so to speak. So uh, thank you for coming to visit. If you would give us one gift, uh, we don't want your offering this morning. We're glad you're here. We want you to be our guest. But would you fill out the zip strip and just let us know who you are? Uh, in fact, of course, you're all supposed to be doing this on a regular basis uh, just to let us know uh, how you're doing, what's going on in your life. And, and one of the main things we want to do is pray for you. Uh, when you write down your prayer requests, uh, those get prayed for by a lot of people. And so I want you to know about that. So please do that for us. And, um, and I want you to open your Bibles. Uh, this is our textbook. This is where we center uh, our time at Bethel Church in the Word of God. And so this morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 1. We're just about ready to wrap up um, the first part of this series. And then after the holidays, we'll go back into uh, 2 Thessalonians and we'll work through that book as well. So this morning we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So turn there if you would. In 2012, I'm forgetting something here. I got ahead of myself. We need to pray. I need the Lord's help every morning. Let's pray. God, forgive me for uh, forgetting to uh, stop and ask for your assistance. Uh, Lord, I have nothing to say uh, this morning that does not come from or emanate in you. Uh, So I ask, Lord, uh, that you would teach us from your word. May I just be uh, a vessel and a mouthpiece for the truths uh, that are contained here. God, help me to uh, bring some clarity and maybe ask some questions from the text that my brothers and sisters are asking. God, may we learn. May we know you better uh, and know your plan of salvation more clearly and know what to expect in the future uh, because of your inspired word. Uh, So grant us grace now uh, as we study your word together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2012, you can remember, was uh, it was a bit of a scary year for a lot of people. Uh, uh, of course, because of the Mayan cal- calendar that predicted the end of the world, December 21st. Uh, do you remember this? And the world watched with a suspicious eye to see if there would be any cataclysmic, apocalyptic types of things. And of course, that year... And that date came and went, and here we all are, right? Dodged a bullet. Uh, And you may remember, this one's a lot more serious. Back in the 90s, there was a very disturbing story about a cult known as Heaven's Gate uh, down in San Diego. And in the 90s, I believe it was 1997, 39 members of this cult committed mass suicide in correspondence with the uh, Hale-Bopp comet that they thought was bringing about the end of the world. In 2011, there was a man by the name of Harold Camping. Does this name ring a bell? He predicted the apocalypse, predicted uh, predicted specifically the rapture uh, on May 21st, 2011. And uh, I was reading an article this past week by the Huffington Post, and it said that his nonprofit ministry spent millions of dollars promoting the speculated rapture date of May 21st. Millions of dollars? 
to promote this day on billboards and advertisements and whatnot. Uh, And he actually convinced thousands and some people sold their homes and liquidated their assets um, in preparation for this. Three days after the predicted date came and went, he revised his prediction to October 21st, citing a mathematical error. (laughs) And um, that date also came and went. And in total, I don't know if you know this or not, those two predictions were not his first and second. They were his fifth and sixth. In total, Harold Camping has falsely predicted the rapture date six times. And to his credit, uh, he has apologized and humbled himself, uh, calling his date speculations sin and saying that he's done, hanging up his apocalyptic hat, so to speak. Um, These kinds of doomsday speculations... Uh, have gone on for forever. Uh, They were even present before the time of Christ, amazingly. Uh, So uh, this is part of, I think, human nature, unfortunately. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul basically cautions us against these kinds of end-time speculation, uh, date-setting, and these sorts of things. And instead, he gives us a lot more practical advice on how to wait wisely for the Lord's return. And that's really what we're looking at this morning. Uh, this is a lot more consistent uh, with what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 36, the Olivet Discourse, where he said about the date and time or excuse me, about the date and hour. No one knows. OK, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And it seems to me as soon as you hear somebody speculate a date and say it's going to be now. You know, plan something fun to do that day because they're wrong. They've just insured it. You know, they've sort of set it aside as the date that he won't come back because they claimed it would be that day. And uh, I think there's an extreme amount of um, pride and arrogance and hubris and just a lot of wasted energy in these kinds of speculations. It's quite simply not what God wants us to be doing. And Paul lays out what he does uh, want us to be doing and. And in Thessalonians 5 here, Paul uh, really avoids the whole speculation of dates and times as he talks about something called the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And um, Paul sort of just drops this this uh, phrase in the middle of his letter to the Thessalonians without really defining it. And that's understandable because he had been with the Thessalonians. He taught them, and, and I'm sure this was something that they were well-versed in as they interacted with him. But, but for you and I, this, may, this phrase may be something that uh, you're not as familiar with. And so I'm going to start this morning, and actually we're going to spend a bit of time talking about what the day of the Lord is and what it refers to. And then we'll move on uh, to the rest of the passage from there. Um, the day of the Lord refers to Christ's return refers to Christ's return, and maybe more specifically, a time of judgment ushered in by his return. Uh, It's throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, uh, and it's called, it it goes by other titles too, it's also called the day of redemption, uh, the day of God, the day of Christ, uh, the last day, the great day, or sometimes just, just the day. And as I said, it's really peppered throughout the scriptures. And it's probably best to think about this concept not so much as just a single day, but a day that ushers uh, and, and triggers a, a succession of events. It's, it's almost like God flips the switch from the economy of patience to the economy of justice. 
and it happens in a sense on a day and and ushers in uh, several events. Um, three primary things that we see here. First of all, it's, it is the day that Christ is revealed, uh, where he returns in glory and power. Uh, secondly, it, it is the day or initiated uh, on the day that he removes all of those who belong to him at the rapture. And we talked about this last week, the catching up of those who belong to him, whether they're dead in Christ, raised and reunited with him, or whether they're living, raised and reunited with him and given glorified bodies. And thirdly, and this is the sobering part of it, it is then the day where God subsequently pours out his wrath uh, on the earth and he judges sin and rebellion. Uh, That's connected with the day of the Lord. And I want to stop right here and we have to understand this day of the Lord in the larger context of redemptive history because if we just talk about the judgment of God all by itself in isolation, we can get a skewed perspective of who God is. God is a God of judgment. But we need to understand his judgment in light of the redemptive whole, okay? And so I want to just remind us of some of that as we kind of lean into this a little bit here. Um, the day of the Lord, this time of judgment, is, is really part of the culmination of God's redemptive plan. Um, and God's redemptive plan is basically to restore what was lost in Adam. If we go all the way back to creation, remember that God created a perfect world. A, a world of peace, a world of, the, the Old Testament calls it shalom, which means more than just peace, but really everything as it should be. We get little glimpses or moments of this in our life when we just pause for a second and kind of exhale and think, wow, this moment, everything is good. You ever have those those moments? I, I had one for Thanksgiving here uh, recently. We had the best Thanksgiving we've ever had. Uh, everything sort of came out of the oven just right at the right time, everything was hot and tasty and good. The table was beautifully decorated because we had some new, you know, dinnerware from Ikea. It's perfect. I told you about that. Um, and we had family up from Washington, and um, it was just good. Do you know? It was like, this is the way life is supposed to be. It's supposed to feel like this. This is the world as God made it. This is the goodness of God just captured in a moment here. So we catch glimpses of that. But that's the way it was. That's the way things ought to be. The shalom of God, this this wonderful, perfect creation. But with Adam's sin came the destruction of shalom. And Cornelius Plantinga calls it the vandalism of shalom. Where sin, kind of like a foreign contaminant, just came in and sort of got all over everything. And began the process of disintegration and distortion and death and all kinds of things. And everything that was right and whole and beautiful became marred. And, um, and that's, it's that broken existence that you and I see every day. And we live in that. We live in that. It is the distortion of God's perfect creation. And so for all of those that have looked around and seen this broken, distorted, disintegrated, disruptive world and thrown up their hands and say, how can there be a God if this? The day of the Lord is the day that God has set aside to resolve their concern. Where the flip is, or the switch is flipped and God begins to, in a sense, answer the problem of evil by setting everything to right. Um, 
Many will ask, is it a good day or is it a bad day? It's both, right? It has to be both. Uh, In the Old Testament, the prophets commonly referred to it as a dark day. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Joel chapter 2. I know I've already had you here at 1 Thessalonians 5. We haven't even read a verse yet. Now we're going to Joel 2. Just want you to know your Bible. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 13, 9. Um, But here Isaiah refers to this dark day. He says, see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. That's a pretty negative description. Would you agree? Uh, But we'll find here that it's, as we read in Joel, it's not just this randomly cruel event. It is destructive. It is an event of wrath and God's judgment, but it is precise. It's surgical. Like a dentist would root out decay, so God would surgically and precisely destroy sin and sinners. Look at Joel 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large mighty army comes. Such as never was in ancient times. Nor ever will be in ages to come. I'll skip down to verse 6 if you would. At the sight of them nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This is the revelation of God that we learned from Exodus, right? The day of the Lord is coming. It is a part of what God is doing in all of redemptive history. And here we can see, especially in Joel, in response to the question, is it a good day or a bad day? It's both. It's both. For some, it will be a horrific day, a day of darkness and destruction and defeat. There is an awfulness to it. Destruction carried carried out according to the precise command of the Lord. But it will simultaneously be a glorious day. And the New Testament especially develops this theme. It's in the Old as well, but... um, The New Testament characterizes this day in several places as a day of celebration and a day of deliverance. And I want to read to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. He says, 
Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then again in Philippians 2, uh, 16, uh, as Paul is talking about his ministry and how he labors and how he struggles, he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And so Paul says it's a day to look forward to. As Christians, we eagerly await this. As a minister of the gospel, he says, On that day when Christ is revealed, I'll be able to say, I didn't just spin my wheels or labor effortlessly or labor in vain. It was for a purpose that I might present you to Christ on the day that he is revealed. And so there is a a glorious aspect to this. Um, And you might hear these verses and and still feel kind of like, well, I I still don't quite get what's so good about this for us. It, It still sounds pretty awful. And I think as you and I tend to think about eschatology, end times events, and the study of the end times, a lot of times it's uh, not a real popular subject because oftentimes I think because of our own self-centered perspective on it. We tend to look at it as how will it impact me and my loved ones, which is just natural and common. But I want to challenge you this morning to maybe think about the the end times a little bit differently. I want you to think about it from a God-centered perspective. What are the implications of this day for God? When we think about it in that terms and those terms, it is a day of righteous vindication. It will be the only right day since the fall. It is a day that God deserves. The day of the Lord is the day where his creation, which has been vandalized, and I don't just mean the world, I mean everything in it, you and I and our lives and relationships, where all of his creation which has been vandalized and distorted will then be restored. Where his people who have been persecuted and even martyred in his name will be promoted and glorified. Uh, It is the day where his power and his glory which have been really shrouded will be revealed and made clear. Uh, It is the day where his name which has been defamed and mocked and ignored and marginalized and trounced upon, will then be honored and revered. It is the day where his son, who left this earth in humility, will return in glory. From a God-centered perspective, it is a right day, a day of righteous vindication and the only right day since the fall. I'm going to press you a little further in this because I really want this to become... Your heart's cry, not just a reluctant belief that you have. Um, Picture yourself at the foot of the cross. Jesus is hanging there, falsely accused, unjustly prosecuted, beaten, naked, spat upon, mocked, flogged to within an inch of his life, bloodied. Pierced with a sarcastic sign above his head, mocking his royalty and a satirical crown, piercing his skull. And they 
executed in the most shameful way, the only innocent man to ever live. In the greatest irony of all history. And I want you to imagine the anger of the disciples who loved him and who are seeing this scene. You can imagine their lips just snarling and seething in anger as they're watching this injustice unfold and watching Jesus' mother weep at his feet as life is slowly pulled out of him in his execution and she watching this happen. Imagine their anger as they look over and see the enemies of Christ celebrating their supposed triumph. And seeing the indifference of the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. Imagine the scene in heaven. The angels looking down saying, how can this be? I imagine their confusion. What is happening here? God, stop this. And instead, the father turns his head. And allows it to commence. Decidedly not coming to the aid of his son. And now, now imagine the day of the Lord. Where Jesus returns in power and in righteous vindication. Not just for the cross, but for the curse of sin and the defaming of God's name through all of history. It is a beautiful vindication for the honor and the glory of God. When we see it with a God-centered perspective, which we often fail to do. The first right day since the fall. That phrase really rings true for me. And Paul basically goes on to say, now we're actually going to get to the text here in verse 1. He wants us to know, don't worry about what day it's on. That's really his first driving point here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 5 of Thessalonians. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the overall picture that Paul portrays here about the day of the Lord is is that the return of Christ will be unexpected. Uh, Yes, there will be signs that sort of show us that it is coming and Christians especially will have a sense of those kinds of things. But overall, the point he's getting across here is that it will be sudden. In a moment, the spiritual realm will invade the temporal realm. What what we think is just perceptible now, the spiritual realm that is dismissed by most, will suddenly be obvious to all. Christ and his forces will be revealed. It will be surreal. In a moment, the blind eyes will see. The reality that was thought to be a fiction will be shown as the most real thing. Uh, and we're told, quite simply, that it will catch people off guard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if we're thinking about it right, it will catch us, or it will catch people off guard. Um, and he, he kind of stacks up some metaphors to show how this will happen here. And One of them is, it will come like a thief in the night. right? Sudden and unexpected. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had an encounter uh, or a experience with a thief in your life, but I have uh, in our home. Uh, we we were sort of experienced this. We used to live over in Hamilton Acres. If you live over there, lock your doors. That's my advice to you. We had a couple situations, but one night about three in the morning, Amy and I are uh, were asleep, and our, our our bedroom was right above the garage and above the garage door opener, and we're laying there about two or three in the morning, and all of a sudden, uh, the garage door opens and closes real quick, and 
you know, when you're fast asleep and the house is quiet and suddenly that foreign noise happens, you know, your heart just, you know, fight or flight reflexes kick in. It's go time. What are we doing here? You know, and I just remember all of those sensations quickened. And then I thought, oh, I know what this is. I, I left my I had my motorcycle helmet um, on the arm of the chair and I had my motorcycle jacket in the chair out in the living room. And I had a little remote to open the garage door, like a little fob in the pocket. And I thought, I know what happened. I bet that helmet fell over and hit that button. And this is silly. We'll laugh about it tomorrow. So I kind of get up and head out to the living room and, um, the helmet is there on the arm and that's not what happened. And so now I'm thinking, I don't know what happened here. What's going on? And Amy shouts from the bedroom, there's someone in our car. And if you know my wife, she's about ready to go get the kitchen knives. I mean, it was, it was on. So I go running back there and I look outside in our car that's parked out on the street. No kidding. There is a hooded person in our car. We're watching this intruder rummage around in our car. And, and you're just kind of looking at this like, there's no way this is happening right now, you know. And then they get out of the car and they come towards the house. So we're on the phone now. And they come over with the tool in their hands to a window in our garage and begin prying away at one of the windows. Someone is breaking into our house and we're watching it happen. And so we get the police over. And long story short, it happened to be... <laughs> uh, um, a lady in the neighborhood who was mentally disturbed and who had taken a night walk and uh, gotten into a series of vehicles up and down the street and not taking things of value, but taking things that were interesting. And I want to tell you, we got some interesting things in our neighbor's car. It was a very illuminating experience. <laughs> and uh, and so they, they kind of dealt with it and we realized, okay, this wasn't a situation of harm or danger, but it was shocking. It was sudden. It was unexpected. And Paul likens those kinds of experiences to the way the Lord will return for some people. They will be shocked. It will be sudden. They won't be expecting it. He goes on to even talk about um, like labor pains uh, for a pregnant woman. And you can imagine how much more this would have been the case uh, in more ancient days when they wouldn't have had all the technology for precise dating of when delivery is going to happen. But suddenly, that first pain, and it's, it's go time. And so he uses these illustrations. It will catch people off guard. It'll catch them off guard. He goes on to say that it will actually shock what I would call the self-reliant. He says that many will be under the impression that their lives are well in hand. They'll be talking about peace and security. And that was actually a slogan uh, going around the world in sort of the, in the Roman era here, uh, under Pax Romana, there was this phrase, Pax at Securitas, which was peace and safety. And so it was sort of a slogan of the, the Roman Empire. And he kind of grabs that and says, people will go around self-reliant, thinking they've got it together. Life is in hand. We're fine. And what's interesting to me is he sort of identifies the return of the Lord with that kind of a feeling. A feeling of safety and security. Not with what we often think of wars and rumors of wars and famines and disease and these kinds of things when everybody sort of gets whipped up, especially Christians thinking, well, here it comes. I'm speculating a bit here, but I it seems to me that what I see in the scriptures is that the return of the Lord will come when we think 
when we're thinking the least about it. Um, it will be surprising. It will catch people off guard. It will especially shock the self-reliant. And then we're given the very ominous words, they will not escape from it. They will not escape from it. Uh, this passage makes a really clear distinction. It assures us as Christians. It says, Christians, you won't be here. You weren't appointed for the wrath of God. The rapture inaugurates the day of the Lord where God goes in and rescues us and removes us from this before he pours out his wrath. That point is clear. But for those who are self-reliant and who think they will withstand this or hide this, we're told very simply that the ones who remain in rebellion against him will not escape. So bring words. You've seen the TV show Doomsday Preppers. Have you seen these or seen them advertised? People stockpiling munitions, food, buying generators, moving off the grid as though they're going to survive something like this. They will not escape from it. And so for those who spend their time speculating dates and those who spend their time stockpiling goods, both are self-reliant approaches to create a shelter for themselves. And the scriptures are clear. There is one shelter that is found from this, and it is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in saving faith with him. If you want to be sheltered from the doomsday, the apocalypse, the day of the Lord, whatever you want to call it, you need to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You need to humble your heart. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to fall on the grace of God and say, save me, a sinner. That is the only shelter from what we're told about here. Paul makes this very clear. Don't worry about what day it's on. Worry about whose side you're on. That's the second part of this, starting in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, which is dead or alive. We may live together with him. Therefore, and here's almost the exclamation point at the end, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And so the big broad point here is that the return of the return of the Lord requires spiritual preparation. Not physical world preparation, preparation, not wasting time in endless and idle speculation. Assurance is given for Christians. You won't be here for this. You'll be rescued from this outpouring of wrath. And in a sense, you won't even be surprised. Uh, you yourselves will see some of the signs that this is coming. So what advice is given? Christians are to live self-controlled and alert lives. In other words, what's the most practical thing you can do in preparation for this day? What should you spend your time doing? Well, first of all, it's very clear, as we've already said, you need to find your shelter in Jesus Christ. But past that point, what do we do? We're told actually some fairly simple things. We're to put on the character of Christ. The three cardinal virtues that Paul seems to address again and again come forward. Faith, hope, and love. 
And, and he almost uses, he uses the metaphor of armor, right? Protective kind of armor. Protect yourself with these things. Faith. A genuine faith. With hope, an expectant hope. And with love. Producing Christ-like love. In other words, Paul almost seems to say, the best thing you can do in preparation for this thing is to quite simply be the church. Be the body of Christ. And be disciples of his. And encourage one another until this day arrives. I think Christians too, we need to maintain here a short-term attitude with a long-term perspective. Paul's advice to the church 2,000 years later, it's the same advice for us. We're, we're, We're to hope for the soon coming of Christ. But we're to live life like it could be another 1,000 years. And I want to tell you this, Christians, that's possible. So, so many well-meaning Christians go around saying, well, I don't know, I think it's any day now. I hope so, but uh, we have a whole life of mission ahead of us. And we should not waste our time speculating or thinking the end is here. We don't need to go out quitting our jobs and purchasing generators and moving off the grid, petting our supply of munitions and resources. We have work for work to do for Christ. Um, one of the commentators asked this question. They said, if you knew Jesus was coming back this week, what would you change? I think that's a fair question, but only if you ask the second question. How would you plan for ministry if it was going to be another thousand years? We have, we have to live in dynamic tension. We have to have a short-term hope and a long-term perspective. Um, again, we're encouraged that Christians will not suffer God's wrath. That's not what this day is set aside for. And we can have confidence of deliverance through trusting in Christ. And I said the exclamation point here at the end is really this. Encourage each other with these things. I've been pretty open with you guys. Eschatology is not my favorite subject. I don't really like it, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I find that a lot of times it feels very negative or it gets you get sort of linked in with doomsday crazies. It seems to me that with regard to eschatology, people are usually on one side or the other. They're usually way over here with frenetic fascination about it, and that's all they can talk about, and they live in fear, and it's awkward. Or they're way over here, and they simply don't care. It's very difficult to find people who are grounded in the middle, right? You know, who, who understand this is a part of the redemptive plan of God. We don't need to worry about what day it's on, but we need to worry about whose side we're on. I think it's hard to find those kinds of people here but paul encourages us with this and wants us to encourage each other guess what you're on the winning team if you've trusted in christ as your savior if you've found refuge in him then this is a good and a glorious day he the word he uses here for build one another building each other up is a good word it's it's okadomio it's a construction word and it means to brace to support to strengthen for those of you guys in construction and you're thinking about how to build a strong wall or a strong header or how to make this this bit a little bit stronger here or there and you're looking how to brace it and how to support it and how to get the best joint and the best construction this is the word paul uses do this with one another build each other up strengthen each other support each other brace one another in the midst of a difficult life that right now is not as it should be Encourage one another with the words that one day Christ is coming back and he will set everything to right. And we as Christians get to look forward to that day and long for that day. Would you pray with me?
Father, this is a sobering message. I know uh, even while there are many who are here who have trusted in you and have found a shelter in Christ. They know that their sins are forgiven. They know they have peace with you and they see the return of the Lord as a good and glorious day of vindication for God and salvation for man. And so we praise you for those that uh, are in that perspective. But God, there are some here this morning that don't have that peace with you. They don't know if for themselves it will be a good day. And I ask God that you would draw them to yourself, that you would humble them in their hearts. They would see their need for you. They would see their need for Christ, the Savior, who died for their sins. That this would be a day of hope, eager expectation. And God, also for many of us, uh, there are loved ones that don't know you, and we know it. And so we pray for them. We pray for them. And we ask God that they would come to know you as well. Thank you, Lord that you have provided a way of of escape through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.